the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter 17, A Call to Arms. It was Martin's turn to grind the wheat. There wasn't much to do on the new gasifier until Dustin, Carlos, and Lucas got more fuel chipped up. While Martin cranked the handle of the mill clamped to the end of the counter, Susan and Judy were rinsing the latest batch of hominy. Their backs were to Martin. Margaret and Anna were busy doing laundry in the dining room. It was more disruptive to have all of the clothes piled around in the center of the house, but it was warmer and involved less hauling of water up and down the stairs. Margaret and Anna managed to communicate their cooperative tasks with simple words and pointing. Through the rhythmic splash and squish sounds of the plunger in the bucket, Judy and Susan carried on their soft conversation. I would have been so scared, Judy said. She poured a thin stream of water into the bowl of hominy. Oh, I was, said Susan. She swished and massaged the hominy between her fingers. But once Mr. Landers was in the truck, I was too busy tending to his wounds. Before all the shooting, though, it was kind of boring. Boring? You said that Eric guy was telling you all kinds of adventure stories. He was, but he's 32 and living in his parents' basement. You know how sometimes you can tell when there's something a little off when someone is telling you a story? Judy nodded knowingly. She paused to let Susan pour off the cloudy water. His stories had that something. They sounded highly enhanced, like he was rewriting his rather ordinary life into an action film. If he saw a squirrel, he'd turn it into a lion. Judy laughed as she began gently pouring more warm water. My Dustin is just the opposite. If he was chased home by a bear, he'd say, Oh, I saw an animal in the woods today, or something like that. Susan laughed too. Funny you should mention about being chased by a bear. That was one of Eric's stories. While I was listening, I was sort of reverse filtering what you say Dustin does. I wondered if he had been chased by a squirrel, but enhanced the tale for public consumption. The image of Eric being chased by a squirrel was almost too funny to keep a straight face to. Both women laughed. I was listening attentively to his stories, Susan said. I kind of had to. His parents were in the front seat of the truck, after all. Susan leaned closer to Judy. In a stage whisper, she said, I think Eric thought that meant that I liked him. No. Judy stopped pouring, but resumed. Yes, but I really don't. Susan turned her head so she could catch Martin's eye. No way. Eric is a self-centered player. I could see that all along. He's not my type at all. Martin could see her out of the corner of his eye, but didn't look up. He pretended not to be listening as he poured more wheat into the mill. Judy commiserated. Most of the guys in high school were losers and players. College was worse. They don't get better when they're drunk. Dustin was just so down-to-earth. He was a keeper. It's hard to find a decent guy out there. Yeah, Susan turned back to massage the hominy pile again. And when you do, they're already taken. Judy chuckled. Okay, Dad, said Dustin, as he got to the top of the stairs. Got the hopper loaded with enough for the next test. Carlos and Lucas chipped up more before they took their turn at patrol. 
Tyler and Charles took a break from fitting the long transfer tube to the truck. Everyone gathered around the gasifier. Time to find out if the new filter works, said Martin. Are you ready? Charles nodded. Tyler nodded, too. Nick gave a thumbs up. Martin pushed the burning roll of paper into the fire chamber of the new gasifier. He waved his arm to Dustin, who turned on the small electric fan. Once satisfied that the tinder and the chips were burning on their own, he closed the door. White smoke streamed out of the jet. As the burner cooked off enough gases, the smoke began to turn blue. Dustin lit the jet, which sputtered with a nearly invisible flame. No one cheered this time. It was the fifth time that they had test-fired the burner. Getting a flame wasn't the problem. Okay, Martin said. Blow it out. Dustin blew out the flame and quickly covered the jet with a white cloth bag. The thin fabric ballooned out from the pressure. That's enough. Martin closed the air intake. Dustin shut off the fan and closed the damper. It would take many long minutes before the fire would suffocate itself. Dustin took off the cloth bag. He looked in with eager anticipation, but his expression fell. Oh, same thing, he said. He turned the bag inside out to show the man who gathered around to see. In addition to a fine soot, larger flecks of carbon speckled the bag. Charles kicked the ground. Man, I was certain extra filter material would have caught all that. Yeah, we can't add more, said Martin. We're close to creating a back pressure obstruction already. We gotta find a way to get those heavy solids out, said Tyler. We can't be putting that into the engine or we'll ruin it in just a few hours. The men stood in silent frustration, staring at the gasifier. Martin stared, hoping a shaft of sunbeam would shine on a part that needed changing, followed by a faint heavenly chorus. Yeah, no divine sunbeam shone. Margaret broke their contemplation. She hurried over with the walkie-talkie in her hand. Martin, it's Mr. Murdot. Simmons here. Go ahead, Martin said into the radio. Sounds like trouble might be coming. Chief Berg said he got a call from Longmeadow. Three cars full of young men went right through town. Didn't do anything, but they're headed our way. Did he say what kind of cars or what they were wearing? Martin asked. Negative. Uh, well, ask him. It might be important. Roger, stand by, crackled the radio. Martin turned to Tyler and Charles. I'm wondering if it's that gang that chased Carlos out here. Maybe it's the same gang that tried to ambush us. How would they know where we went? asked Tyler. Maybe it's some other gang, out on a random raid, guessed Nick. The radio hissed. Longmeadow said three hot rods, guys in blue or gray hoodies. Thanks, Gene, said Martin. That might be the same gang that tried to jump us. Better let Berg know. Roger that. Your wife said you got some of our guys at your house. I'm calling the others. Meet Chief in town. Uh, Roger, out, said Martin. Why would the same gang be driving way out here? Tyler asked. There's plenty of other targets between us and Manchester. I know, said Martin. But if they skipped Longmeadow and drove through, I think they're coming here. Maybe after us, to get even for their guys that we shot. Well, too bad for them for trying to ambush us, said Charles. But I still don't get how they would know where we are. Maybe they don't know it's us out here, and they're just looking to raid some fresher victims, said Martin. 
Either way, we're going to have to go meet them up on the road and not just wait for them to come to us. Three cars. That could be like 12 to 15 of them. Dustin, fetch me the extra magazines and two boxes of rounds from the safe. You want me to load up my shotgun with slugs? Dustin asked. I do, but you're not coming. What? Dustin sounded disappointed. You need to stay here and head up home defense if necessary. We don't know if these guys will stay together or break up. Martin turned to Margaret. Call in Carlos and Lucas from their patrol. Everyone needs to be home in a defensive watch position. As Dustin trotted off, Martin turned to the others. Help me get the battery back in my truck. It's still got a couple of gallons in it. Nick, how about if you run home and get your rifle and extra ammo? We can drive by your house and pick you up as we loop around to Tyler's house so that they can get more, too. Margaret stood nearby with wide, worried eyes. Aren't there enough men on that side of town to deal with them? Maybe, said Martin. We might just be back up or something. But we need to be ready. Hopefully we can stop them early before they get out here. Dustin is staying here with you. Have everyone take their corners. Don't go shooting anything that moves, but keep a sharp eye out. I'll take this walkie with us. When Carlos and Lucas get in, keep that walkie with you. Monitor Channel 7. Dustin trotted up, carrying a small range bag. Martin thanked him and slung it over his shoulder. Okay, guys, let's go, Martin said. No more running after bad guys, said Margaret. Her stern facade didn't disguise her worry. You, you be careful. Martin smiled and squeezed her hand. Tyler and Charles climbed in the back of Martin's truck. Nick met them at the end of his driveway. Martin stopped the truck in the middle of the road in front of Tyler's house. There was precious little traffic these days. They ran inside, emerging only minutes later with backpacks slung over their shoulders. Charles was tucking a 1911 into his waistband. Martin's radio crackled. They left the Dexter house, said Berg. Repeat, all suspects have left Dexter's house. Cross the road, behind Fenton's. That's next door to Aunt June, exclaimed Charles. Come on, man, hurry up. As they rolled past the center of town, gunfire could be heard. The police cruiser and a pickup were parked across the road. Men crouched behind the vehicles. Berg motioned for the four of them to keep down. Martin and Charles crouch ran to Berg. Tyler and Nick stayed with the truck. How many do you have? asked Berg. Four. We've got long guns and sidearms, said Charles. Shots popped from the windows of the Fenton house. Everyone crouched a little lower. These guys hit just about every house on this road. We counted 13 of them, said Berg. They overpower one house at a time. Near as we can tell, they've been stealing food, loading it into their cars. No word from the homes they've already hit. Not sure if anyone's hurt or, yeah, well, we just don't know yet. More shots came from the Fenton house. Men behind the stone planter across the street returned fire. They got done ransacking Dexter's place when we came up, said Berg. Don't think they were expecting concentrated resistance. Now they're holed up in the Fenton's house. My Aunt June is right next door, said Charles. He looked coiled to jump and run. We have to get her and Uncle Aaron out of there. Too dangerous right now. We're working on that, said Berg. I know Aaron. He won't take any silly chances. He's probably got June down in their cellar. I've got the Bell Hill group on that side of the road and the Wilson Hill group coming up the backside over here. Center's got the road closed off, and South Farm said they're sending five guys. Those boys aren't getting any further into this town. 
Uh, where do you want us? Martin asked. Should we maybe go around and block off the road on the other side? Uh, what if they make a run for it? Excellent idea, said Berg. If North Forks comes through, we'll have plenty of people here. Might send more out to you. Get going. Martin and Tyler ran back to the truck. Get back in the back, Martin said. We're going around to cut them off. Charles got in the front seat with Martin. Come on, man, hurry. I don't want those guys getting away. Martin backed up quickly, turned up a driveway, and then sped back through the center of town. High Pond Road ran parallel to Cheshire's one main road. At Cantor Road, he hung a left, traveling a bit fast for having two men riding in the pickup bed. Coming back up the main road, Charles motioned for him to slow down. Take it easy. We need to find a good spot. Not here. They can drive through that meadow to get around us. Go a little further up. Martin could hear faint gunshots. A cluster of old homes that was Cheshire's downtown was only a mile away, over a slight rise in the land. There, exclaimed Charles. That's a good spot. Pull your truck across both lanes, right here, by that big tree. The rock walls will keep them from being able to cut across the yards and get into the fields, Martin said. But my truck doesn't completely block off the road. There's room between my bumpers and the walls. How about those fence rails? Tyler pointed to a split-rail fence around one of the home's fallow gardens. Great, said Charles. You and Nick go get some of the rails as fast as you can. Let's roll some of those big rocks from the rock wall into the space, too, said Martin. They could blast through some fence rails, but big rocks will stop a low-slung tuner cold. Now you're talking, said Charles. Martin worked on the right, behind his truck. Charles worked on the left, in front. They each rolled three big rocks off the walls, creating a dotted line between Martin's pickup and the parallel stone walls. Nick and Tyler carried over several split rails. They laid them across the rocks, more to look obvious than thinking that the balanced poles would stop a car on their own. Okay, Tyler and I will take the left side. You and Nick get behind that angled wall there. When they stop at our barricade, we'll have them in a crossfire. Martin took up a position behind a low rock wall, near a big tree at the end of the dirt driveway. The driveway's rock wall was roughly perpendicular to the walls lining the road. Nick took up a position a few yards further right. Everyone checked their rifles and padded pockets for last-minute reassurance of spare magazines. While the four men stared up the empty road, dozens of shots cracked and popped in the distance. Wilson, fall back, Berg radioed. They've jumped houses. Bell, hold tight. Wait for my signal. Which house? demanded Charles from across the road. Some of them are in the Kendall house now, said Berg. Wilson counted only eight. The rest must still be in Fenton. Careful. They're in Aunt June's house, Charles stood up. The sound of more gunfire echoed down the road. Bell, center will give you cover fire. Move up. Wilson, move up to those sheds. Don't go any farther. Just be ready to keep their heads down if needed. They're planning to storm the house, shouted Charles. He ran across the road and grabbed the radio out of Martin's hand. Don't storm the house, Chief. My aunt and uncle are in there. We know that, son, Berg's voice sounded tense. Keep this channel clear. Man, Charles paced in exasperation. If they storm the house, there'll be bullets flying everywhere. Maybe your aunt and uncle got into a safe room or something before the hoods got into their house, Martin offered. They don't have a safe room, 
Charles flailed his arms. They think everybody should love everybody. Go, go, go! Berg shouted into his radio. Waves of gunfire erupted. It was hard to distinguish individual shots. Bell, get ready, too! No, behind you! Get down, down, down! Stockman, said Berg. The foreign Fenton's house made a break for it while we were breaking into candles. Repeat, suspects in car, coming your way. Get ready! Martin could feel a tingle of fear ripple up his back and across his shoulders. Trouble was speeding toward him. Charles was back across the road and positioned low behind the rock wall. Martin hunkered down beside the tree. He looked through his sights at the road. The loud, raspy exhaust note of an approaching tuner sent a fresh trickle of fear across his shoulders. He tried to ignore it and concentrate on his front sight. The dark blue Mitsubishi seemed to be galloping as it sped over the undulating old highway. They looked as though they were doing over a hundred. The driver must have suddenly spotted Martin's truck across the road. He stabbed on the brakes, sending blue smoke trailing behind the tricked-out Lancer. At first, it looked like he was going to try to go around Martin's truck, but changed his mind. He may have seen the big rocks. The passengers fired a few shots wildly out of their windows. The driver attempted a U-turn, but once the back end of the Lancer was off the pavement, the rear tires skidded, sending up a spray of dirt and grass. The car slid sideways for a dozen yards. As it slowed, Martin sensed an opportunity. He couldn't make out anyone inside the car due to the glare on the windshield, so he aimed at the Lancer's front wheel that was face-on to him and not turning since the driver had the brakes locked up. Martin aimed at the sidewalls. He squeezed off a shot, quickly got the muzzle centered again, and fired off two more. The front tire deflated rapidly. More shots came from the Lancer. The skid was nearly played out. The Lancer settled low as the front tire deflated. The driver gunned the engine, trying to get them out of the crossfire. Martin fired two more shots into the tire. Between the holes and the acceleration, the tire began to shred. The Lancer shifted and swayed, but made slow forward progress on the spinning rim. The driver abandoned his maneuver and got out. He fired over the top of the car, one-handed. The look on the young hoodlum's face was desperate defiance. The backseat passenger had his window down, firing at Charles. Martin could never get a good look at the man in the backseat, so he sighted at the door, about where he imagined the gunman's chest would be. He sent off two more rounds. Nick fired at the driver. Martin's gun jammed. Misfeed. Leaning back against the tree, he quickly dropped the magazine and racked the bolt. The jam fell clear. He popped in a fresh magazine. The backseat gunman was now firing at Martin. Splinters of bark raked across Martin's head. Nick fired. Martin took a quick peek from the other side of the tree. The gunman was aiming at Nick's position. One of Nick's shots hit the front passenger window, sending a spray of glass into the car. Martin peeled off three more rounds into the door. The gunman sank out of sight. Was he hurt? Killed? Reloading? Martin glanced at the other gunman. The driver was no longer visible. Was he down? The other backseat man was still shooting over the top of the car. Nick moved further right along the wall to get a better vantage point. More shots cracked through the air. Then, silence. Martin looked at Nick, who shrugged. Martin couldn't see Tyler or Charles. Were they hit? Everyone okay? shouted Tyler. We're both okay on this side, Martin shouted back. Two down behind the car! shouted Tyler. 
Nick, come way around and cover me while I check on him. Nick jumped over his wall and ran forward in a wide arc. He kept his rifle at his shoulder and his eye at the sights. He stood several paces away, sighting on the fallen bodies Martin couldn't see. All quiet. We're clearing the house, room by room, crackled the radio. We stopped the ones who ran, Martin radioed back, checking them now. Roger, Stockman. These two are dead, shouted Tyler. I'm coming out, shouted Charles. Cover me. Ready, Martin shouted back. Martin kept his front sight on the passenger side windows for any sign of movement above the sill. He had the trigger squeezed to near the break point. In the flurry of the first round of shooting, there was no time to think about anything. With the pause, there was time for anticipation to crank up the adrenaline. He tried to slow down his breathing, but his lungs ignored him. His heart throbbed. Charles stepped over the rock wall, pistol at full extension. Count nine down! All nine down! Searching house! said Berg. Charles approached the car, crouched low and in half steps. His 1911 extended in front of him. Martin moved to stand 45 degrees off Charles's right. Charles could fling open the rear door and stay flat along the car. Martin would have a clear view and shot inside if necessary. In the brief break in the action, Martin tried to take inventory. He saw the driver get out and shoot. He saw the left side back seat man get out. Martin didn't see either of them go down, but Tyler reported two down and dead. Martin saw the right side back seat man shooting out of his window. Maybe he saw him go down. Berg said there were four. The front passenger window was up. It was just a jagged ring of white glitter now. But Martin couldn't recall seeing anyone in the front seat, firing or otherwise. Was there someone still lurking up there? Martin kept an eye on the hole in the glass, too. Ready? Charles asked without looking away from his sights. Careful at the front seat, answered Martin. I haven't seen the fourth one. Ready. Charles reached for the door handle with one hand the 1911 in his other hand. He yanked the door open and jumped back along the car's rear quarter. It was hard to make out any details in the dark interior. A motionless mass lay across the seats. I'm going to pull him out, said Charles. Keep a bead on him. Martin nodded. Charles stepped forward and reached low in the open car. He grabbed a high-top sneaker and pulled. He backed up, dragging the inert man clear of the car. The man's gray and blue hoodie was wet with dark blood. The half-opened eyes and slack jaw told of death. Martin realized the man was probably dead from his shots. He expected to feel horrified, but wasn't. It all seemed so matter-of-fact. What lay before him was more of a target than a man. It was a disconcerting feeling. "'Hey, man! Uh, no shoot, man!' came a voice from the front seat. Charles jumped back to the rear quarter of the car, his gun trained on the rear door opening. "'Come out slow!' shouted Charles. "'I can't open the door,' said the man. "'My arm's all shot up.' Charles looked at Martin. Martin nodded that he understood. He put the carbine sights in the front window. Charles closed the rear door. Crouching very low so as not to be visible, he reached forward for the door handle, paused, then flung the front door open. A skinny young man, wearing a shabby Utah Jazz hoodie, clambered awkwardly out of the car. His right arm had been hit in two places. His left hand was cut up and bloody. 
Despite that, he tried to raise his hands above his head. Charles approached carefully from his side. Martin kept his sights on the young man's chest. Charles patted him down with his free hand. He pulled a small pistol from his waistband, a knife from the hoodie pocket, and a magazine from the rear jeans pocket. The wounds on the man's arm and a single bullet hole in the side door suggested that the man had bent forward with his arms over his head during the shootout. The bullet fragmented after hitting the door and the mechanisms within, spraying the man with shrapnel. Martin wondered what they'd do with their prisoner now. The other three hoodlums were easier. They could be thrown in a trench. We found Kendall's, hissed the radio. Afraid they're both dead. What? Charles shouted. He grabbed the young hoodlum by a handful of hoodie neckline. He held the pistol to the man's head. You killed my family! Don't, shouted Martin. They killed my family! I'm going to kill them! The young man's mouth trembled, eyes shut tight, waiting for the blast that would end his life. You can't just shoot him, said Martin. He remembered Berg saying that four fled from the first house, not the Kendall's house. The prisoner could be guilty of many other crimes, but not that of killing Charles's relatives. He surrendered. He's our prisoner. So what? Less work for everyone. Just kill him and be done. This was a very dark line Charles wanted to cross. Remember back in the horse trailer, you were telling me about your tour in Bosnia? You found all those dead Bosnians in that building, remember? It was a thin thread, but Martin was encouraged that Charles was arguing with him instead of simply killing the young man. That suggested an inner conflict that Martin might appeal to. Charles wasn't answering, so Martin answered for him. The Serbs took him prisoner, then just shot him. That Serb you captured later, what did he tell you? Charles looked angry at remembering. What did the Serb tell you? Martin repeated louder. He said prisoners are too much work, Charles snapped. Why do you care about this scum? I don't care about him, said Martin. I care about us. We can't just do whatever we feel like. Once we start killing people because we're angry, or they're just too much trouble, where does that end? Times are different now, insisted Charles. Everything is falling apart. There is no law. Law only exists if we choose to keep it alive, said Martin. If we act without law, then there is no law. Everything will go completely to hell. We'll be no different than them, throwing away everything you said mattered. Martin could see Charles's gun back away from the young man's head, just a fraction of an inch. Charles's face was contorted with rage, but his eyes were looking a thousand miles away. Charles shook off the memories. He pushed the gun back to the man's temple. If my father was here, he'd have shot this scumbag without a second thought. Tyler had slowly moved around behind Charles. You hated everything about Dad, said Tyler solemnly. Now you want to be like him? Charles twisted his head away, as if to resist the words and the memories. In the distance, the police car's siren began to wail. Chief Berg was coming their way. Damn everything, Charles shouted. He pistol-whipped the young man, who collapsed to his knees. Charles started kicking out one of the Lancer's taillights. "'He'll be okay. In a while,' Tyler said quietly. "'We took some losses, but we stopped a pretty major threat from the outside.' "'We did,' Martin nodded. "'Let's pray we can hold things together on the inside, too.'" 
Thanks for hanging with me this far. Only one more chapter left in book two. Thanks for listening.